We're going to read from Psalms 139, 13. Beginning. So, Psalms 139:13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Uh, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides to the joints and the marrow and discerns the thoughts and intents of men and women. So, Lord, we invite you by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that work in us by your word today. Search us, know us, convict us, try us, transform us, convert us, make us new by your word. Lord, we thank you for it. Precious gift. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of life. Lord, that we so often go through our days working, going to bed, getting up, eating, drinking, Lord, and we never never stop to just thank you for the gift of life, Lord. So today we're just going to pause for a second. We're going to thank you that you have made us. You've made us in your image. You've breathed in us the breath of life, making us living souls, and we live and breathe and have our, our, our being right in you, Lord God. We thank you for that. Lord Jesus, be glorified today in everything that we've done so far and everything that we will do and the attention we pay to your word. God, enable me to speak it with clarity, with accuracy, God, with passion, Lord, with conviction in my own heart. Lord, enable me that I would not um, cause any disgrace or dishonor to be brought to your holy name. Thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I don't say this often enough, but how grateful are you for the worship team at this church? Man, what what an amazing group of faithful people. Uh, most of them, you know, we try to structure things around here where people get regular time off and we, you know, uh, intermittent service. And um, the worship team does that too. But if you might notice, there are some of them that are up here pretty much every week. Looking at you, Robbie Abney, where are you? There you go. So, and, and I'm just so grateful. You, you, you don't know what a blessing it is to have a group that you know when you sit in front of them, they're going to sing to you about Jesus. And they're going to sing to you about his power and his glory and his majesty. And I just want to tell you, Katie, as their leader, that I'm really grateful for that. Um, one other real quick note before I get started. Um, last week we took a, a quarterly missions offering. We, we tell you this all the time, but every quarter we 
we seek to raise $6,000, so $24,000 over the year um, for missions. It, 100% of it goes to missions. And for uh, continuing our long, long streak, you guys, through your generosity, gave uh, the, the missions offering we need, and all of our missionaries are fully funded for another quarter. So thank you very, very much. Keep it up. Don't slow down on your generosity. And um, and let's keep the word of God going out from this little tiny church in Lubbock, Texas, to all over the world. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Praise the Lord. So most of you are familiar with, enough familiar with the Bible to know that Genesis 1 tells us how that God created everything with just his word. It's an amazing story there in Genesis 1. He said right at the beginning, let there be light. And of course... There was light, and the Bible says that it was good. And so in that story, God speaks again and again. He creates an atmosphere for the planet. He creates seas and dry lands, trees and plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly bodies. He creates aquatic animals and birds. He creates every kind of insect, even mosquitoes. He creates reptiles. He creates mammals, everything that covers the face of the earth. And he does it just By speaking, it's all done with just his word. How many of you want to serve a God that powerful? But in verse 26, if you're reading through chapter 1, in verse 26, God moves in a decidedly different direction. This is what we read. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 goes on, next chapter, and, and it relates how God created men and women. After creating everything else by the power of just his word, when it comes to the man, God literally got his hands dirty. Literally. Genesis 2-7 says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth. Literally, the Almighty, the infinite God, knelt down in the mud. Now think about that. Try to wrap your brain around that. And lovingly and intricately formed Adam, the first man, in his own image. He didn't think it was beneath his majesty in some way to give such personal attention to the various details and the various attributes that would define human life. And he took a similar hands-on approach with the first woman. The Bible says that he extracted a rib from the side of Adam and fashioned Adam's bride from that rib. He formed Therefore, from one substance, a perfectly complementary couple that together, not alone, but together, would represent the image of God. Now, you may be used to that story. You may have been heard, uh, you know, been hearing it since you were knee high to a grasshopper. But I'm telling you, that is an amazing story. It's an amazing story that God spoke creation, everything, and then when it came to men and women like yourselves. He got personal. He got down and, and with his hands and with, it was a very tactile thing. He, he touched, he felt, he, he, he wanted to, to make it personal with them. The man and his wife, therefore, were, 
one of a kind. They were especially made by the hands of a divine craftsman. He created many awe-inspiring things, animals in the Grand Canyon or whatever else. And, and but, but of all those things he created, humanity would be his crowning achievement because they alone in all of creation would bear the image of God. But it was more than the mode of their creation. In other words, how God created them that separated them from every other living thing. The Bible says in in, uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, the last half of that verse, it says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, that doesn't mean that God just gave him, you know, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and he came to life. It means that he literally breathed an eternal soul into the man. He became, he, there was something different about this man versus any of the other creatures. See, all the other creatures had a biological life, but when God created humanity, he imparted something more than just the ability to process food and air. He, 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 gave, he did uh, more than with them than just to have pre-programmed instincts like he did with everything else. He gave them a portion of his own eternal element. He gave them a soul. And they would be more like him and less like all the other living things that inhabit the earth. They would eternally exist. You may not have have fully grasped that or even wrestled with the fact that, that your life on earth is, is temporary. But your life as a living soul will never end. You will exist somewhere when this life is done. And that's part of that impartation from God. They would never cease to be. And they would also live beyond their instincts. Not that they don't just live like other animals pre-programmed. They, they reason and they decide. And they would be able to innovate and to discover. And they would reflect the creativity of the one who created them. They are completely different. This creation, this pinnacle of his creation, completely different than any other thing God created. As his image bearers, because of this, they would represent him to the rest of creation. They would be be the ones that bring God's orders and communicate God's commands. They They would be the ones that did that. They represent him to the rest of creation. God himself had given them dominion over everything else he had created. You don't see... You know, slugs conquering space. You don't see, you know, orangutans developing vaccines. God gave man dominion over all the rest of creation. When I was growing up, don't judge me. It was the 70s, and I loved watching Planet of the Apes movies. I loved them. I watched one five or six years ago. It's the stupidest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. The most moronic bit of film ever dedicated, you know, to celluloid ever. But I loved them. And, and they had this, you know, this whole thing. These, these monkeys would keep humans in zoos. Well, that's not the way God designed it. We keep them in zoos because we have dominion. So human life is superior to anything else God has ever created. Another example. You guys know me. If you've been over to my house, you've seen this. I'm obsessed. I love my little dog, Luther. 
If you've ever seen him, he's the cutest dog in the world. I'm sorry to all of you other dog owners. Cutest dog, sorry, Jason. Cutest dog ever lived in the world. Jason has a competing dog in our house. It's not quite as cute as Luther, but, but he's okay. Um, but whether Luther likes it or not, and sometimes he does not like it, I have dominion over him. Sometimes he really doesn't like it. Especially when it's cold and I'm making him go outside, he doesn't like it. As cute as he is, he was not created in the image of his God. And God never once breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, making him a living soul. And as silly or even obvious as all this might sound, it's important because we live in a society that has diminished the value and the glory of what it means to be a human being because of our rampant contamination by sin. We've lost the glory of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. Well, today is set aside to reorient our thinking. Today, some of you may be aware, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And today we're joining people all over the world in worshiping God for the gift of human life. The word sanctity describes the state or quality of holiness or sacredness. When we speak of the sanctity of human life, we're simply saying that human life is holy. Any Human life is holy. And today I want to discuss three aspects of human life that designate it as holy. Things that prove that it's holy. I want to prove that humanity is distinct, as I've tried to do even in the introduction, among all of God's creation. And we're also going to discover the implications of this distinctiveness for all of our lives. Now we've already discussed the first way in which human life is distinct. And that is that God created human life. I told you how God took personal care to create our, our first parents. How he gave them more than just biological functions that everything else in the animal kingdom has. But do you realize that when he created you, not just your first parents, when he created you, he gave the same attention to you as he put you together in your mother's womb. The same attention that he gave to Adam and Eve, Adam kneeling down in the, in the mud and Eve crafted from a, a rib with his hands. He gave the same attention. And, and the, the text that Ginger read proves that. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's personal. Those are actions. He didn't command that it was. He did it. Are none of your minds blown by that? God sewed you together. He he knitted you together. He formed you in your mother's womb. That's what David's declaring here. And what was his response to that? I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. People often... In our culture today, speak of fetuses in the womb, developing in the womb, as though they were troublesome parts of a, of a, of a uh, diseased body that we can elect to remove. Like swollen tonsils or an inflamed appendix. I've even heard people recently compare babies in the womb to parasites. Like they're ticks or tapeworms. 
But the Bible says over and over and over that what is growing in the womb is a child. That's the personal handiwork of God. He forms, he knits together. And the psalm, the psalmist pondering this process is not inspired to just morning sickness. He's inspired to worship. He says, as I think about these things, I'll praise you. Wonderful are your works. See, now David said this. I want you to consider this. He's considering what's going on in the womb. And he said this, never having the benefit that we have of ever seeing a sonogram. He never saw it. Ever. He never knew all the wonders of modern obstetrics. All that we know and that are discovering about fetal development is astounding. What is occurring during those nine months should just inspire worship in us. Did you know that at just five weeks, a little circulatory system is forming it's almost completely formed, as a matter of fact, in, in your in your baby. And, and a little tiny heart is beginning to beat. And all this is happening while your baby is the whopping size of a sesame seed. All this is happening. I think God's pretty creative and amazing, isn't he? The very next week, the sixth week, the child begins to develop a face, a brain, a digestive system. And, and, and they've grown to an even bigger size, the size of a lentil. And by 11 weeks, they're, they're almost completely formed, having all the necessary systems that will continue to develop for the remainder of the nine months. Develop, developing babies in the womb have fingerprints, they they yawn, they hiccups, and if you ever want to see something really cute, they even suck their thumbs in the womb. It's adorable. And they can respond to the sound and distinguish between sounds of their mother's voice. How cool is that? They are, in the womb, individual persons, and in David's words, fearfully and wonderfully made. All of this is by the design of a creative And loving God. And everything that makes us human originates with Him. Isn't that great? He alone is the architect of all of our biological, emotional, and spiritual complexity. And this fact of creation makes human life holy. If you were a painter or a sculptor and I went to your studio and smashed all your works... It would not only be an insult to you, which it would be, but it would also be a crime. And I would be culpable for that. Well, I want you to know that human life is a display of God's masterpiece. It's to be protected, not destroyed. As a nation, you're all well aware that our hands are bloody. They're stained with the lives of millions of innocent children slaughtered in the name of rights and convenience. But the blood of the unborn cries out to God day and night for vindication. And Christians, if you are a Christian, I'm not talking to you if you're not, but if you are a Christian, you cannot sit idly by while millions of unborn children are slaughtered every year through the atrocity of abortion. You cannot sit there idly by it and imagine you don't see it. 
It's a crime against children, but not only against children. I'm here to tell you, abortion is a crime against women. Abortion is a crime against children and women and also against the holiness of God, their creator. And as creator, God has the sole decision-making power when it comes to how life is disposed of. It's not anybody's choice but God's. Proverbs 24 gives us marching orders concerning this terrible season of national life that we're in where it's legal to, to, to murder your own child in the womb. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, now listen Christians, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We must defend the sanctity of lives that are created by God. So how do we do this? We do it by speaking out in the public arena. We've got to say that certain things are wrong and say it loudly. But more than that, we do it by our actions to the contrary. A great way to do it is by praying and asking God if you're supposed to foster or adopt children that otherwise would have no home. We do it by advocating for women who are pregnant and having themselves finding themselves with few options. And we do it by teaching our children and everyone around us the value of human life. I want to make something very, very, very clear. In this church, we are not dismissive and we're certainly not judgmental towards women who find themselves pregnant or even women who find themselves in the fog of post-abortive guilt. If you or anyone you know is in either of those situations or one I didn't mention I want to invite you to come and talk to Ginger. Just, I'm going to put her forward as a resource for you. She has some wisdom and she has some resources uh, that she, she'll be able to help you. And I'm telling you, we are committed to helping you if you find yourself in one of those situations. But God is the author of life. And we as believers cannot afford to be neg- negligent or apathetic and fail to place great value on what that which is designed and treasured by God. Amen? The second thing that makes life inherently sacred is that God chooses to relate to us through human life. I'll just let that sit there and think about that for a second. That God, the creator of the universe, the one who knows and numbers and names all the stars, wants to know you. God doesn't wait until this life is over and we're absorbed into some cosmic plane before he reveals himself to us. He comes to us right in the middle of the times where we stumble through failure. He comes to us in our fear, in our doubt, in our anxiety, in our distress. And he says to us, like he said through Jeremiah the prophet, and you shall be my people and I shall be your God. That's got to be the best promise in the Bible. It's got to be. And in fact, the whole Bible is about how God fulfills that promise. 
See, the gospel, we talk about the gospel a lot here, and I want to clarify your thinking. It's not far off if you think this, but but I want to clarify it a little bit, just adjust it a little bit. Most of you probably think the gospel is about forgiveness, that you come, you hear the gospel, you respond to it so that you can get forgiveness. But the gospel is not so much about forgiveness as it is about reconciliation, That's the point of the gospel. Now, sin has separated humanity from its creator, and God wants to restore us to himself. Therefore, the forgiveness of sin wasn't the end goal of the cross. It was a necessary component of it. It wasn't the end goal, but it was the necessary prerequisite in order for us to be reconciled to our creator. God didn't want to just forgive your sins and dismiss you. You know why? He would have racked up a whole new set of them. But God wanted to forgive you so that he could know you. And more importantly, so that you could know him. Since he formed Adam and Eve from the dirt, or Eve from the rib, of course, God has always desired fellowship with us. Always. Deists teach that God wound up the creation like a mechanical toy at the beginning. And he's just kind of stepping back and watching and see where it all goes how it's all going to turn out. But no student of Scripture, if you've ever opened your Bible for any amount of time, you could not come to that conclusion. God wants us to know Him. The Old Testament is a constant reminder of God's longing to be united with His people. And the New Testament is a celebration of how that union, that reunion, was accomplished. God's desire to be in eternal relationship is, is what tells us that life is sacred. It's sacred because the Most Holy One is pursuing it. He's pursuing you in the midst of your life so that He can know you. That screams that your life is sacred. It's important. It matters. David's pointing this out when he says, My frame was not hidden from you. God was paying personal attention. I was being, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now let me ask you a question. If, if the eyes of the Lord were cast upon your unformed fetal substance, how many of you think He stopped looking at you now? Come on. His eyes are still on you. When I was growing up in church, we sang a song, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. They were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. It seems that when you read that Genesis 1 and 2 account, it seems that as glorious as their creation was by the, by the word of God, that plants and animals were sort of mass produced by that powerful word. But humanity's creation, both at the beginning, and as we already talked about, individually in the womb, you and I, indicates a far greater degree of care and intimacy accomplished by a personal touch from God. The psalmist says, while he was formed, he was never out of God's sight, as I as I pointed that out. Now, why is that important? So, imagine you're at our house observing us, me and Ginger, and I asked Ginger to make me a grilled cheese sandwich. First of all, usually the answer would be get up and make your own dang grilled cheese sandwich. But let's just, let's just assume that she's, she's catering to my laziness 
And I ask her to make a grilled cheese sandwich for me. I am not worried at all about the process. I'm fairly certain Ginger's got this one under control. I will not be standing over her shoulder, making sure that she gets everything right. The temperature, the color of the toast, the cut of the cheese. I couldn't care less. Just bring me the sandwich. I don't care. But if someone, and I know many of you have been through this process, but if someone is building a house for me, you better believe I'm going to be on top of that process. I'm going to oversee every single tiny little detail. Did they follow the the blueprints exactly? Are the fixtures that Ginger wanted, I mean, after all, she's making me sandwiches, are the fixtures that she wants in place exactly as she wanted them? What about those paint colors? Are the rooms all the right size? I'm going to watch everything. I'm going to be on top of it. See, God never stopped watching us when we were formed, and God has not stopped watching you till this day. You know why? His level of concern displays the value of our lives. You watch over what you care about. You watch over it. Grilled cheese sandwich, there's plenty of grilled cheese sandwiches, but there's only one of you. You're unique. You're one of a kind. I love the scripture that I alluded to with the song from my childhood. Matthew 10, verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Basically, Jesus is describing pet sparrows. And apparently in his day, you could take the smallest Roman coin and you could buy two of them for your kids. Great Christmas presents. And not one of them, Jesus says, will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, when one of those worthless little birds falls dead, God sees it. God knows it. That's how infinite he is. But then Jesus makes a comparison. He says, so God sees when those little sparrows die, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, who do you think he values more? The very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, some of you, I could do that, so it's not really that big of a deal. (laughs) I won't name names, but you know who you are. But what, what Jesus is indicating there is intricate care. And then he says this, fear not, fear not. Because you are of way more value than a sparrow. Wow. So if God watches a little sparrow, cute little sparrow, fall down dead, how much do you think he's watching you in the day-to-day affairs of your life? Knowing that God has intended humans to be in relationship with him, it causes us to want to honor all life. I've mentioned this before. I see Phoenix out there. Phoenix does an amazing thing. She goes to people on a regular basis, writes to them, spends time with them that are in prison that a large portion of society has just dismissed. She's in conversation with people who are on death row for crimes that they've committed. And yet uh, she's such a model to all of us because we honor life. 
from the lives of the poorest among us to the marginalized, to the lives of our enemies across the street and around the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. That is what being a Christian means. It's part of what being a Christian means, that we honor life as people who have been reconciled to God Many of you are in that category. You've been reconciled to God by His grace. Well, we place people above possessions, above power in our list of priorities, in the joyful hope that they too will walk in a joyful restoration, a reconciliation, a restored fellowship with their Creator. That's what we want for them. We don't care where they are right now, death row, poverty, just angry depths of immorality and sin. We don't care. We want them to be reconciled like we've been reconciled. We demonstrate this with loving service, with hospitality, with benevolence for the widow, the orphan, the elderly, the mentally challenged, the physically disabled. When society casts someone aside, the people of God should rush in to pick up the pieces. And this is why we preach the gospel Our desire, our burning desire is that everyone in our circle of influence that's been appointed to eternal life would come to know the saving power of a God who loves them, loves them, not as a species or as a race, not some broad brush love, but He loves them as individual creations. Our desire is not simply that they would know His saving power, but that they would know Him intimately. And there's only one way that this happens. And it's the last thing about human life that makes it holy. This last thing reveals why God created us and how he intends to be in relationship with us. Us knowing him and him knowing us. And it is that God has redeemed human life. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. My sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. God has redeemed human life. God created humans in His own image and placed them in a... He created them in His own image. He placed them in in a perfect world to live in relationship with Him. But we, as 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 a people as all of us 100% this is this is an absolute universal problem we have all chosen sin and we've exchanged the glory of being in his image for chasing the image of lesser creative things over which we were intended to have dominion and now instead of taking dominion we bow in worship to those things think about that We bear the image of God, and yet we find ourselves constantly bowing our knee to the image of lesser things. To money, to power, to success, to fame, to others' opinions of us, to a perception of success. We we bow our knee to those created things instead of saying, I don't need to bow my knee to any but God because I've been created in His image. And when this happened... When we chose to bow before lesser things, the relationship that we knew with God was shattered beyond repair. Because you see, God is too high above us. He's too holy to look upon our sin. If God allows himself to be tainted by sin, he becomes less than God. 
And even if he could do that, we all desire, it's in our programming now, our DNA, we all desire other loves, other sin, other, other things that are less than God. But God, this is the good part. See, God looked at us and all of our rejection of him, all of our rebellion, all of our fist shaking in his face. And God was undeterred in his insistence to have a people for himself. So even before he created, even before he, he knelt down in the mud and made Adam, God decreed a remedy for God's lethal, for, for, I'm sorry, for humanity's lethal addiction to sin. Even before he created. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Why? Because he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. I don't care how good, moral, upright, uh, you know, right voting you are. I don't care. Doesn't matter a hill of beans to God. He didn't save us because of our works, but he saved us, get this, Because of his own purpose and grace. God had designs for your life that had nothing to do with what you had done, what you will do. He had none of that. He said, I want you. That's awesome. And then he provided the grace that was necessary to to make that happen for him to get what he wanted. And listen to this last phrase. He, he, he saved us because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now think about that. He looked over the sea of humanity that would be created. And he said, before, before creation, before sin, before anything, and he said, I want Hannah. I want her. I want Ricky. I want him. He said that and he chose it and and he, he decreed that before the ages even began. See, Adam and Eve's sin did not catch God by surprise. When they listened to the serpent, they didn't throw a monkey wrench in God's grand scheme. They didn't do it. God always, always intended to rescue fallen humanity by his son so that he might glorify his son through his bloody sacrifice. God always knew what he was doing, and he always knew what you would do. And yet he extended grace and mercy to you before the ages of this world ever began to roll. Listen to his own words. He's praying to the Father the night before he's crucified. And he says, Father, I desire that they, you're they, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All this was put together before God ever said, let there be light. God, I'm going to say something so profound that's going to blow you out of your seats. God loves Jesus. You don't seem as shocked as I thought you might be. God loves Jesus. And he redeemed the people through Jesus' sacrifice. And he's now glorified Christ Jesus. Glorified him all the way to the right hand of himself. At the right hand of God, seated on a throne forever and ever. He's glorified Christ because of the people that he redeemed through his sacrifice. And this was always his intention. And so knowing that God has redeemed humanity by Jesus, it is the thing that really screams that life is sacred. 
The fact that we've been redeemed by God and that Jesus paid such a price to redeem us. It doesn't mean when I say that, that, that our redemption by God uh, means that life is sacred. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved. We don't teach that. Or that, that they, or that they are saved or that they will be saved in some universal sense. But the, from our perspective, see, we don't know what God knows. Can everybody say a hearty amen to that? We don't know what God knows. And, and so from our perspective, everyone you come in contact is potentially one of God's elect. I don't care how you come in contact with them. I don't care if they're a sorry old drunk, you know, violent, vile, profane person. How many of you were before Jesus saved you? Everyone you come in contact with is potentially one of the elect of God. Don't ever forget that. Because God might just use you to open the door that brings them into the kingdom. Don't ever forget it. So knowing this, we diligently share the gospel with whomever will will listen. Anybody that wants to listen to it, I'm going to tell it to them. I don't take it upon myself, and you shouldn't either, to judge who is worthy to be saved. Because let me tell you a little secret. The truth is, none of us are worthy to be saved. None of us. You ain't good enough. You ain't moral enough. You have not impressed God to such a degree that you're worthy to be saved. If you're saved, it's because of His grace, His purpose, His desire, and not your own. And so we make room for the grace of God to do in sinners what He's done in us, praying that He will sovereignly redeem many. And so we don't neglect to pray for people to be saved or to share the gospel with them because of what we see in their character. Instead, we should remember who we are, or who we were rather, before Christ Jesus found us and saved us. I am not proud of who I was before I came to Jesus or before Jesus found me. The horrible, vile person. Let me tell you another secret. I'm not proud of who I am today because everything I am is not because of me, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ that's been bestowed on me richly and freely. I got nothing to glory in, nothing to boast in, only my Savior. So we pray for people. We share the gospel with them. And we remember who we were. David describes this intense, redeeming love of God when he writes this, how precious to me are your thoughts. God was thinking about you before the foundation of the world. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and you are still with me. God won't go away. He just is hovering over David because David is his. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you're his. And if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, you can and you can be his. And he'll hover over you. He'll watch over you. And he'll have days where you bring him glory and days where you blow it. And he'll never leave. He'll keep hovering, keep watching. Warming, keep designing. Beautiful thing. See, God's redeeming love never takes its gaze away from us. He never stops thinking about us. I love the, what Hebrews says about Jesus right here and now. It says that Jesus always lives to make intercession 
for us. You know what that word means to make intercession? It means that Jesus is 24-7, 365 days a year, pleading our case before God. That's incredible. Sometimes I approach Jesus like he should be my prosecutor, but he never is. He's always my defense attorney. He's always, always, always pleading my case before God. Devil comes forward as a prosecutor and he says, you saw what he did. You saw what he said to his wife. You saw the way he treated that, that guy out in the public. You saw all that. And God says, yeah, I saw it. And Jesus says, yeah, but he's put, put his trust in me for his righteousness. And God says, case closed. Good thing. So no matter where we're at right now, no matter if you're grading yourself on some moralistic curve, no matter where you find yourself on that curve, it's not an indication of God's ability to save you. The sanctity of human life makes it unthinkable for us to dismiss even our own lives. Certainly it makes it unthinkable to take the, quote, easy way out through a drastic measure like suicide. See, when life seems overwhelming, God is mighty to save the most troubled, distressed people. I've experienced it over and over in my life. When we're discouraged or depressed, especially by our own depravity and wickedness, nothing knocks me off my, you know, my place where I'm standing. Nothing knocks me down worse than looking at my own failure, my own depravity, my own sin, my wickedness. But I'm learning that when that happens, the best thing I can do is not just recite to God how horrible I am, but to once again cry out to God for mercy. In the Bible, Jesus says this, and this should give all of you hope. No matter where you find yourself this morning, it should give you great hope. Jesus says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a guarantee you can take to the bank. I will never cast out. All you got to do is come to him and he'll receive you. Human life has sanctity because God created it, because he wants to relate to it and be reconciled to it. And he proved that when Jesus died to redeem it. I want to close with this verse, Romans 8, verse 32. Speaking about God, it says, He who did not spare his own son. Now, don't rush through that. If you're a mom or dad, think about what it just said about God. Could you do the same? Could you willingly lay down the life of your child for another? Now, some of you have had children in the military, have gone to fight wars, And some of you, they may not have come back. And so you have a a little hint of what it means to lay down the life of a child. But let me take it one step further and help you to understand how even that doesn't tell you what it was like for God. Imagine, you know, because it's noble. We consider in our culture noble for a soldier to go and die for our country because we we think our country, uh, of our country as good and, and noble. And that's a good thing in our culture. That kind of patriotism is a good thing. But but imagine that you were called on to lay down the life of your child for murderers, for liars, for child molesters, for the most evil, vile people that you could imagine. 
Think about your own catalog of past sins. The worst, the things that, as I've said many times before, that you would run out of this door in shame if, if I were to be able to just perceive them and publicly state them. And that's who Jesus was volunteered by his father to die for. It wasn't some noble nation. It wasn't some morally upright people. It was the vilest among us. And you and I, we are the vilest among us. Let's go back to our verse. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then Paul draws a conclusion. He says, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? The verse in the Bible says, God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and to godliness. And it's all yours when you place your trust in Jesus. I want to ask our communion workers to come up and assist me here. Um, if you're here today, I want to say something to you. We, we try to make this kind of an invitation frequently, but if you're here today and you're searching your heart and you know that you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you've never said, I am, I am turning over control of my life to Jesus. And today is the day that you can do that. You think, well, how do I get ready for that? You just come running. You don't have to clean up anything. You don't have to get your act together because let me tell tell you a little secret from a preacher, you'll never get your act together. I've never gotten my act together, but Jesus still loves me and and, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, not through my own effort, He's changing me. He's transforming me. He's converting me. And Jesus can do the same thing for you. So if you're here and and searching your heart, the inventory of your heart, and you're saying, I have never placed my trust in Jesus. I've tried to be good. I've tried to do the right things. I may have even done some religious things, but I've never put my trust in Jesus. And I just invite you today to put your trust in Jesus. Some of you might actually be here with someone who you're certain or, or at least you're pretty pretty sure, is not a believer. I don't think they'd get, get insulted if you just leaned over and said, Hey, how about today? I'll pray with you. I'll talk to you. And give your life to Jesus and, and, and start a brand new life knowing for sure that Jesus' grace is covering you. It's a wonderful thing. Some of you... Uh, might be here and this happens more frequently than you'd think you might look back on your life and you say well i was seven years old one time in first baptist somewhere whatever first methodist somewhere and i said a prayer because the preacher told me to and he put me in some water and dunked me but but i don't i've never really put my trust in jesus i've never trusted him for my salvation and today is the day you say man i want to be sure i want to make i want to make absolutely sure that i am following christ and not just not just putting my hope in a few words uttered in a prayer can I invite you to do that? If you don't have anybody here that can pray with you, that's fine. I would pray with you. Daryl would pray with you. Judy would pray with you. Paul, Sherry would pray with you. Ginger would pray with you. David or Katie would pray with you. Just find us. You might think, well, that would be embarrassing. I would rather be embarrassed than be unsure. Amen?
And so come and let us talk to you. Let us pray with you. We want to invite you into the most glorious thing that will ever happen to you. So we talked about the sanctity of human life. And it becomes really relevant when we consider that Jesus, for us, was not just God, but he took on humanity. He, too, had a human life. And his life also was sacred. Not not for the least of which fact that he was God. But he was he was fully man and fully God. It was, you know, we're all 100% of something, but Jesus was 200%. He was 100% God, 100% man. And he took that sacred life, that life that had sanctity, and for the sake of others, rascals, vile, foul people, he laid down that life. He was broken, which will be represented in a moment by the bread. His blood was poured out, which will be represented by the cup. And every single thing we talked about today is represented at this table. The God who created intricately and put together the man was himself torn apart. The God who is desiring to have relationship with you and I was an outcast. He was despised and rejected, the Bible says. And the God that has redeemed us all by his sacrifice was cursed as he hung on a tree bearing all the sins of the world. And he did it for one reason, that he could know you and bring glory to his Father. So would you just consider those thoughts as we come to the table this morning? Would you stand with me? I'm going to read some words of Scripture and pray, and then we're going to come and receive the bread and the cup. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you that life is sacred. We thank you that your life was sacred and that your your sacred head was wounded. Your, Your sacred hands were pierced. Your sacred feet were pierced. A thorn, a, a, a spear was thrust into your side. And God, we, we thank you for that because all of that brokenness of of your humanity, of your physical human form represents life to us. Your death is life to us. So Lord, we come to your table today with hearts of thanksgiving that you have created us, that you relate to us, and that you have redeemed us. And we ask you to be blessed by our praise and blessed by our devotion. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to call those who don't know you to to your side, to, to be in fellowship with you. And Lord, I ask that that you would just cause us all to be 
committed to the sanctity of life and committed to a a life where we uh, are constantly uh, giving thanks and praise to you for for what you've done in us and for us and with us. And so God, I, I just pray blessings over this people and I ask that you would just meet us at the table. I pray that that as people come, they would have encounters with you, that you would speak to their hearts, their souls, and touch their bodies, bring healing. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, could I ask you to stand one more time? I'm going to read a benediction over you, our common benediction. And um, uh, it is common in the sense that I do it frequently from these words, and it's uncommon in the fact that the that as I mentioned last week, God told Moses and Aaron that when he when they spoke these words over the congregation, he was they were putting his name on them. So I want you to consider all the majesty and wonder of those words. The the name of the living God is going to rest on you. So hear these words and the power that they proclaim. Place your hands in a receiving position and let me put these words to you. The Bible says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.